Good morning, everyone. It is good to be together. Thank the Lord for the sleep that we did receive. Um, it's good to gather. It's good to worship. It's good to sing. Uh, we are continuing our series in the book of Mark. As Jesus continues his journey to the cross, so do we follow along and beside him on that journey as well. Uh, today we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, and we're going to go ahead and read that together. There are Bibles in front of you if you'd like to use those. Uh, the words will also be on the screen behind me as well. So I'll go ahead and read. You can read along with me. And this is the passage we're going to spend our time in today. Mark chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Isn't that the most encouraging parable you've ever read? Um, so we are going to stick in this parable for the next 30 or so minutes, going verse by verse to see what the Lord would have for us, what's interesting about this parable is that it's actually in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what's interesting is in each of those uh, places, it's actually preceded by the authority of Christ questions. So remember last week when Jesus asked uh, the Pharisees uh, John's baptism, was it from heaven or not? And so there, the Pharisees had an opportunity to prove themselves as faithful tenants, but they wouldn't speak publicly whether or not they affirmed who Jesus was. They wouldn't say yes, they wouldn't say no, but we'll learn by their actions that they very quite say no. What's interesting is they had an opportunity to not be like the tenants that we read in the scripture, but in so doing, what they did is they proved that they were those tenants, that they hated the vineyard owner, they didn't care about a servant, and they didn't care about Jesus. Also, this parable would be considered a judgment parable. It's interesting to note the tone that Jesus uses. A lot of times we like to think of Jesus as, you know, meek Jesus, feeding everyone, holding the kids and loving him. And that is Jesus. Uh, that's partially Jesus. And so we need to understand that Jesus is very intense uh, for specific reasons. And he directs this right to the elders. And what's also interesting is usually when he gives parables, everyone is really confused, right? Wait, what exactly did he say? And then he pulls them in the back and then he tells them. But this one, he said it in a way where they knew exactly what he was talking about and they knew exactly who 
he was talking about. And so this parable, as they understood it, and as we can understand it from verse 14, is it's clearly talking to the church leaders at that time. The elders, the pastors, the teachers, anyone who carried and bore responsibility to teach and proclaim God's word, those are the people that he was talking to. And then in addition, this also clearly sets up Jesus' road to the cross. Because why is he alive? He's alive to die and take our place on the cross. And so this parable sets that up perfectly, right? And it gives us further glimpse of the rocky relationship that Jesus had or that God had with Israel all throughout the Old Testament. So let's jump right into it. We're going to start in verse 1, and it simply says this. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. There's a quote about parables by a man named Edward uh, Schweizer, and he says, The only person who can understand a parable is one who is willing to accept or reject its message. It must produce either faith or disbelief. And that was true then, and that is true now. When we read God's scripture, it would either produce faith or it will produce disbelief. So now let's jump right into Jesus' parable. Again, in verse 1, it says, A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them the fruit of the vineyard. Here we have Jesus sets up all of our main characters for this parable, starting first with the vineyard owner. We understand that this character is God. What's also interesting is he interrupts the uh, parable to talk about how wonderful the owner of the vineyard cared for the vineyard. Anything that was needed was given. There were clear boundaries. There was a wall. There was a pit for the wine press. There was a watchtower for defense. You could see that the owner loved and cared for this parable. Or also we could say we could see how God loved and cared for his people. He spared no expense. This was a wonderful vineyard indeed. The second character is the vineyard. Who is the vineyard? The man built a vineyard. Who is that? We understand that to be Israel or God's chosen people. Really quick, we're going to go Old Testament and we're going to read Isaiah chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 7. I'm skipping a few parts just for the sake of time. And it says this. This is God talking through uh, the prophet Isaiah. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. And cut out a wine press as well. Then God, he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. What more could have been done for the vineyard that I have done than I have already done for it? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to the vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its walls, and it will be trampled. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is who? The nation of Israel. And the people of Judah, the vines he delighted in, his people whom he loved. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. What's interesting about this Isaiah passage, God is directly concerned with the conduct of the vineyard, of Israel, of the people. But here in this parable, Jesus is instead focused and concerned not on the vineyard or the people, but the leaders of the people, those who are caring over it. And it's good to know who exactly is who. And throughout our passage, we'll be referencing Isaiah chapter 5 a couple more times. 
So here Jesus is concerned with the farmers and the tenants, not necessarily the vineyard. So who are the farmer and the tenants? We understand that to be the rulers of Israel. Or in our context, or Jesus' context, that's the elders, that's the chief priests, and that's the teachers of the law. Next, we have our servants. So, who was the servants that the vineyard owner kept sending? Who was that? We understand that to be the prophets or God's messengers. In Joshua chapter 14, God calls Moses, Moses, my servant. What's interesting is all throughout Scripture, God never labels anyone a leader, but he always labels them his servant. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, God calls David, David, my servant. So all throughout the Old Testament, the servants in this parable are representing the prophets or the servants of Christ. Now we get to the Son, and we understand that to be Jesus. He self-proclaims that that is, in fact, who he is. Now, with all the characters in mind, I know it's a lot, we're going to reread this passage inserted with the characters so we really understand what Jesus is saying. And at this time, the Pharisees understood exactly what Jesus was talking about. So let's go ahead and read it together. God planted Israel. God put a wall around it. God dug up a pit for the wine press. God built the watchtower. God cared for Israel. Then God rented Israel to some religious leaders, some elders, some teachers of the law, and moved to another place. At harvest time, God sent a servant prophet to the religious leaders, the elders, and the teachers of the law to collect from them some fruit of the vineyard. Now what we're going to do today, we're going to talk about what this passage meant to them, and then what is the timeless truth that we can understand it to mean for you and me today. So first off, God, he, the owner of the vineyard, rented the vineyard to some farmers and went to another place. Back in this time, those who had uh, more possessions or were entrepreneurial, uh, they would uh, build vineyards and hire people to work them, and then they would leave for a long time. It was just understood that that's just what they did. If you didn't have the gift of being a farmer and understanding all those things, uh, you funded it. And you did that, then you would leave, and you would do that again, you would leave, and so forth. So everyone understood exactly the context of this parable. And then it says, but at harvest time, he, the vineyard owner, God, sent a servant, a prophet, to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. If he was a faithful Jew, actually, this was a prolonged amount of time. In Leviticus 19, it gives us the exact uh, parameters of what you did with the vineyard when you owned it. And it actually took up to five years. Whether or not Jesus wanted to make the reference to Leviticus 19, we can understand this to be a long time that the vineyard owner was away. In years one through three, the fruit was forbidden. So the fruit in the vineyard would grow, it would be left for the poor or for those who are in need or the passerby, and then it would die. The owner of the vineyard would not collect. Year four, it was considered holy. They wouldn't touch it, and that was the Lord's, and they would just leave it. They wouldn't grab anything, they wouldn't do anything. But once year five came about, then they can eat it and enjoy it. So what's the point? The owner was gone for a long time and hoped that those he put in charge, the religious leaders, would faithfully care for the vineyard. And how did God or how did these men respond to the vineyard owner, respond to God's love and care? Because remember, it's a beautiful vineyard indeed. It has walls and it has a watchtower and, and there's a pit and it's wonderfully cared for. How did they respond? Well, let's continue our parable and see. Verse 3, it says this, But they seized him, 
Remember the messenger, the servant? They seized the servant, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. At this point, the crowd, the Pharisees, they're livid. They're mad. The injustice of these people, the wickedness and cruelty of these people who were hired to care for the vineyard, why would they do this? Let's again reread it, but inserting the people of the parable. And it reads like this. But the Israelite leader seized the prophet, beat the prophet, and sent him away empty-handed. Then God sent another prophet to them, to Israel. They struck this prophet on the head and treated the prophet shamefully. God sent still another prophet. This one the Israelite leaders killed. Then God sent other prophets. Some of the prophets the Israelite leaders beat. Other prophets the Israelite leaders killed. Jesus takes a lot of time to really describe the treatment of God's prophets in relationship to Israel. And let's look at those words again in our text. It says, they seized him, they beat him, they sent him away empty-handed. They struck him on the head, they treated him shamefully. They killed him, they beat him, they killed him. What Jesus is doing is he's drawing a clear line in the sand of God's great love for his people. That he would send prophet after prophet after prophet to draw them back to him. To bring them to repentance. To show his great love for them time and time again, even in their rebellion and wickedness. And yet, after each one, God's love is countered with evil and hatred and ruthlessness. Now let's look in Second Chronicles. This is what God says about Israel concerning his prophets. Second Chronicles chapter 36, it says this, The Lord, the God of our ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers prophets, servants, again and again, just like this parable, again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at the prophets until what? The wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. Now let's talk specifically about Israel, specifically the prophets in our Old Testament. In 2 Chronicles chapter 24, there's a prophet named Zechariah. He was stoned to death. In Jeremiah chapter 26, prophet named Uriah. He died by the sword. Jeremiah chapter 20, Jeremiah was beaten and put in stocks. The apocryphal or the legends or the history, they say that Amos, Amos was killed. Micah was killed. Isaiah was killed. Jeremiah was killed. Ezekiel was killed. Joel and Habakkuk were all killed. And then we come right before Jesus to our last prophet. John the Baptist, surely this last prophet, they will respect. But what happened to John the Baptist? We read many months ago in John chapter 6. John was beheaded. You look at the actions of the tenants, the Israelite leaders, and it's difficult to understand why, after time and time again, would they keep treating these people with contempt and hatred? Why would they do that? It doesn't make sense. It's madness. They're just building up for themselves this wrath when, when it's time to pay. But what's even more complex and interesting about this story is why would the vineyard owner, owner 
keep sending servant after servant after servant, even though he knew what their destiny was. Why would God do that? And here is our first point for the morning. God's love is beautifully unfathomable. We can't understand it. His love for you is beyond measure. In our confirmation class, I asked the kids a trick question. I said, describe God's love or tell me about God's love. And they named all these wonderful, great things. And there were good answers. And then I asked them, do you think that that's enough, that that fully describes God's love? And they said, no. And I said, well, what else would you add? And they didn't know what to say. Because our words cannot describe the love that God has for us. We can't imagine it. We can't write it. We can't draw it. We can't speak it. We can't comprehend it. There's no word in all of the languages that will describe God's love for his people. It's unfathomable. It's awesome. And it's amazing. And it's beyond comprehension why the vineyard owner would send servant after servant after servant knowing and understanding what would happen to them. It reminds me of Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son. You know, the son says, oh, father, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to live in vileness and lewdness and do whatever I want. And then he comes to his senses. And then he goes back to the father and he says, when I get there, I'm going to tell him, I just want to be your servant. I just want to have barely enough food. And as the man was walking over, or as the son was walking over to his father in Luke chapter 15, it says, but while he was still a still long way off, his father saw him and filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And then he gave him back the signet ring, and he put the robe on him, and then he killed the food and, and had a party for him. Because God's love for us does not make sense. God continually pursues us day after day and time after time, even when his love is responded with rejection. Some may see the act of the father in the vineyard and think on God's part, it's utter foolishness that he would keep sending people. But later Jesus describes in this parable that those are in fact the people who understand the cornerstone and stumble upon it because they don't get it. But we, those who really know Jesus, we look at that and it screams, God loves us so much. And not to stray too far off the point, but to really quick think about our own life. Think about how far you stray and I stray and I continually go away from the Lord. How our hearts are prone to wander. Think about how much you deny God in your lifestyle. Think about how much stock you put into the worldly kingdom and not God's kingdom. Think about your own sin and rebellion and evil. And then think about how God continually comes after you over and over and over again. And then think about these scriptures. John chapter 6, verse 37, it says this, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. I will never drive away those who come to me. Let's read Romans chapter 5. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Jesus? There's love for us in this story. Understanding God's great love for his people and God's benevolence, his love on us, is not out of our goodness, but it's a result of his own nature. 1 John 4, 8, whoever does not love does not know God. Why? 
God is love, right? In his nature, he is always loving, always. Everything that he does and he wills and he sovereignly commands, it's always out of the nature of love. Our salvation and also God's judgment on those who rebel. It's all an act of grace and love. Now let's jump back to the parable in verse 6. It says this. He, the vineyard owner, God, had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him, last of all, saying, they will respect my son. This is the end. Grace on top of grace, as it says in John 1, has already been given. Now, what will they do with the son? What will the tenants now do? Will they come to terms with their own evil and realize maybe it's time to repent? Or will their pride and their greed overtake them? What will they do? And remember, when he sends this one, he's not described as a servant. Jesus isn't a servant. He's his son. And his mission is the same as the others, to go and see the fruits of the vineyard. So how do they respond? Verse 7. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. This shows the depravity, the wickedness, the cruelty of this people, that they would kill and reject God over and over, given opportunity after opportunity to repent and to turn, and they did not. What's also interesting is it says, so they took him, Jesus, and killed him. This brings up two questions, right? They took him and they killed him. Why? Because they wanted the inheritance. The first question I ask is, do they really think that by killing the son, if you're in that scenario, do you really think that the owner is going to be like, okay, well, I have no more son. You can go ahead and take the inheritance. Like, do they really think that they're going to receive the inheritance of the vineyard if they killed the son? This parable over and over again, it reveals the foolishness of man that we think if we push God out of our lives, we will actually be happy and we will gain more. The less we have of Jesus, the more life will be better. But we understand that not to be true, right? Because doom is their destruction because it's the wickedest of sins to deny and reject Jesus as our Lord and Savior. The second question makes me ask is, okay, if they killed the son, what now will the, will the father, the owner of the vineyard, do? What will he do? And Jesus answered that, and he asks that to the Pharisees and those that were there. He says in verse 9, What then will the owner of the vineyard, God, do? He says, He, God, will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Jesus is now driving home his point. God will bring righteous judgment, loving judgment on unfaithful tenants, unfaithful religious leaders who deny Christ. Judgment will come. So two things happen there that the owner will do. The first thing is he will come and he will kill those tenants. The second thing is he will give the vineyard to somebody else. What's interesting about the language of of come and kill, that's the same language in verse 7 that the tenants used when they saw the sun coming. They said in verse 7, come, let's kill. And then Jesus says, he will come and kill. The rod that measuring used, the rod that we use with others will be used on us. 
This parable has shown how God is slow to anger, abounding in love, and how extensive his grace is to all of us that we can reject him over and over and over again. And yet he comes to us and he calls us and he speaks to us and he shows us his glory and he shows us his love and his mercy and his compassion. God had every right to kill those tenants after they denied the first servant, but he didn't. But that doesn't mean that justice will not come for those who reject God. Now at this point, it's important to stay true to the text. What is Jesus saying? What is he talking to about these people? And it's a reminder again. Remember in Isaiah 5 when he comes and he judges the vineyard? He's worried about the conduct of the people. But here, he's not worried about the vineyard. He's focused on the tenants, those who are leading. So God's judgment on the tenants, specifically for those religious leaders, those teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, his judgment is directed towards them. Here's our second point for today. And God is very clear on this in the parable. Leaders bear an extreme responsibility. Those who lead God's people bear an extreme responsibility. From this parable, we can see four clear roles for leaders in the church. The first one is God has given leaders all they need to be successful. God built the vineyard. He put the wall. He put the watchtower. He dug the pit. We can understand this, that God has given us all the tools in order to be successful. Scriptures, grace, his love, his spirit, on and on. What a beautiful opportunity we have. The second thing is there's an expectation for the vineyard to protect God's people, right? There's a watchtower. There's an expectation for those religious leaders, those Pharisees, to protect God's people, to clearly proclaim the gospel. The next thing is they are to work tirelessly to water and plant and care for the vineyard. Before they're called tenants, they're called farmers in verse 1. And why does he do that? Because it's tiring work. But understanding, according to 1 Corinthians 3, 7, so neither the one who waters nor the one who plants is anything, but only God who makes things grow. And they work tirelessly, the leaders, in order and hope that God will grow the congregation. The fourth thing is they're accountable to God. No matter what happens, God is coming. God is coming to see. So those religious leaders at that time abdicated their responsibility to faithfully teach and, and follow according how God has commanded them. And then I think about where we are, and I am so grateful for the faithful leaders that God has put in front of us. They are not like those tenants that deny Christ. They are people who work tirelessly. That is why we are to give thanks to the leaders that God has given us here at First Press. That is why we are supposed to pray for the faithful leaders that God has given us here at First Press. That's why we are support. God's faithful leaders here at First Pres. We are to love and encourage God's faithful leaders here at First Pres. And we are most importantly supposed to obediently follow Christ like our faithful leaders at First Pres. We are supposed to stand under them in prayer and lift them up to the Lord for their task is not an easy one. And the Lord is in the business of using men like you and me, broken and fallen, to lead his church and carry us to where he wants us to go. So to the faithful leaders that are in this room, a sincere thank you, not just from me, but from all of us, for not abdicating your responsibility and, and faithfully leading us how you have been leading us because it's extremely important and keeping us close and dear to our hearts and praying for us and being patient with us and loving us and caring for us. So thank you. 
Now let's turn on to our final point, which is this. We all must decide what we will do with Jesus, what we will do with the cornerstone. Jesus is making clear lines in the sand in this text. This is what he says in verse 10 and 11. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is what Jesus is saying. Some will say that Jesus could not be God because he died on the cross. They reject the stone. But those who know God say Jesus is God because he died on the cross. We see the same image, the same picture, and we see different things. Because those who are in Christ don't stumble over the cornerstone, but they lay down their lives and worship him for who he is. This reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, and it says this. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We see it through a different lens because we know how, how wicked we were in the past. And we see God's love for us that he continually calls us and goes after us. And over and over again, his great love and grace and kindness towards us. So then, all of us are left with a choice. And there are only two choices according to this text. The first one is that we repent from our ways and we believe unto Jesus, that Jesus died on the cross. And on the cross, not only did he die physically, but at that time, all the sin that you and I have ever committed was put onto Jesus, was imputed onto Jesus in our place. Everything we've ever done. And so we can look to Jesus for forgiveness because he took our place. And us being wicked and sinners, we can stand before God and be righteous and be made whole. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for you and me, that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. And so we repent of what we do, and we faithfully follow after him, and we believe in him that he took our place on the cross and died. And as a result, we then have life. We repent, and then we are justified before the Lord. And then the second option is, we reject the gospel like the tenants over and over again and understand that we will not be justified before the Lord, but we will fall into God's judgment. This is a parable of God's great love for us, that he comes after us time and time again. And oh my, do we wander. Oh my, do our thoughts get the best of us. Is the world so enticing? Money is a wonderful thing our luxuries, our heaters, all the things that we see as awesome. We get so distracted. And when I say that, I talk about me. Because I want God, but I also want me. But Jesus is saying you can't have it both ways. So turn and follow after Jesus. It's a, it's a parable of his continuing love and care for us. And the beautiful thing is, if you have not yet come to terms with your faith in Christ, you can be rest assured that he will keep coming and coming and coming. And those around you will keep praying and praying and praying that you come into right relationship with God. Because at the end of this life, all of these things that we see that are, matter and are, are important are nothing. 
if we got just a glimpse of heaven, a five-second glimpse of heaven, we would understand our great need for Jesus. And we would lay down our lives and we would follow after him at the cost of our own very lives. And so let's close with this Isaiah passage and then I'll pray, then we'll worship. It says this, Isaiah chapter 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. And this is the beautiful part, isn't it? Let them turn to the Lord and he will have what? Mercy on them. And to our God and he will what? Freely pardon. There is grace upon grace that has already been given. And that's all through the person and work of Christ. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I thank you for this time that we get to gather and worship. I thank you that we can see your great love for us, that oh, how we wander and we go our own ways and we do our own thing, but at each time you call us back to you. And we thank you that we have responded to you, that you have drawn us to yourself. It is not a work that we have done, but we understand your great love and care for us that although we will wander, you love us. And as Romans chapter 5 says, You demonstrate your love for us while we were still sinners. You died for us. We thank you for your grace and your love and your compassion that you keep coming after us. And we also thank you, Lord, for the faithful leaders that you have placed here at First Pres, that we can follow after them and that they care for our hearts and they care for our souls. I just pray a prayer to lift them up, that you would encourage them and strengthen them for the tasks that they have at hand, that they would seek you wholly, that you would bless their families, that you would give them grace and patience and kindness and compassion. You would strengthen their hands and their needs. You would meet their needs and encourage them and fill them with your Holy Spirit. Their work is not easy, and we are grateful that you have brought them here and that we can faithfully follow you alongside of them. We love you and we thank you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.